man, that passage was like consistently over-explaining, wasn't it? (laughs) Good morning. Today we continue our study in the book of Genesis, even though starting next week we're going to start a new series and we'll come back to Genesis later. Today we're talking about circumcision, which if you're familiar with the practice, you know it can be a bit of an awkward subject. And so every joke that I have written is in my notes and I'm not going to go off the cuff because... I'm just not gonna do it. But here's the thing. While circumcision absolutely happened and still happens, it was a symbol for something so much more important. It is a symbol for what someone who really embraces the gospel is. Someone who has been circumcised on this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus has an identity that is one that has cut away anything that isn't Christ being the sole identity of their existence And I will say that term again later on as I unpack what that means. Last week, Ruth did a fantastic job of leading us through Genesis 16, where we see Abram and Sarai get impatient with God's promises and take things into their own hands. I thought Ruth made some great points specifically about that. And if you haven't heard the sermon, I'd highly recommend you go back and listen to it. Now, 13 years have elapsed since chapter 16, and now we're in chapter 17, and we can assume that these were years of unhappiness and unrest and maybe even awkwardness in the household of Abram. The presence of Ishmael in the home created endless contempt, bitterness, envy, jealousy, and rebellion. These 13 years were designed of God to teach Abram the problem with acting on his own. And I've been studying this passage, obviously, to write this sermon, and there was this quote that kept coming up that I kept sharing with people because I thought it was so good. It was from Pastor Ray Stedman many years ago. He said it this way regarding this passage, if you insist upon having your own way, God will often let you have it till you're sorry you asked for it. Now, it's not because God is vindictive or mean, but as an illustration of why we should listen to God's word and respond in obedience rather than rebellion, because God promises those who walk with him don't necessarily have everything perfect, but they're walking alongside the perfect one who is our shield and our great reward, as we have read in Genesis. So we're going to begin in verse 1. Here's what it says. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Abram was 99. Uh, In the famous words of Ruth last week, that's old. Not only is it old as far as years on the planet, but God is still, if Abram knows it or not, going to give he and Sarai a boy that was conceived from both of their DNA. And I just had a baby about 17 months ago. And I'm only 41, and man, being more than double that, yeah, that's pretty old to be dealing with diapers and teething and nighttime tantrums. Wow, 99. But what, but what does God say to Abram? He says, I am the God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. He introduces himself as El Shaddai. Say that back to me. El Shaddai. Yeah, that was, I'm not very good at repeat after me which tends to be a name that refers to God's power and ability to fulfill promises. So it is El Shaddai that comes to Abram, even at Abram's very old age, and tells him that Abram will walk faithfully with him and will be blameless. Walk before me, he begins with. Now, this is kind of a big deal 
because I can skip over the subtle point that God makes and jump right to the faithfully and blameless part. Why? Because like everyone, I want to know what's required of me when it comes to God. Like the rich young ruler, I want to know what I must do to inherit eternal life. And God says to Abram before anything else, what Abram will do and what will come of that. And it's not trying to be all perfect or self-righteous. It's not morality or even your purity that makes you right with God. It's your holiness. So what's the difference? Well, holiness means set apart. You're set apartness, I make up words, of being God's possession, being in relationship with God, which comes from walking with him. It's a way of saying that someone has a relationship that they walk with them. They do life, they experience things together, and Abram has this with God, and it is in this relationship that faithfulness will be produced and blamelessness will be given. That's a bit of a spoiler. Blameless can be translated to perfection or perfect. The problem with our cultural understanding, more ours today than theirs when this was written, is that blameless or perfect can be something we think we can attain, but God is speaking in positional rank rather than something that can be earned by trying really hard. Meaning this is not something that takes place by your own will and your own work, but because God has called you to walk with him, your faithfulness is evidence of your blamelessness. But what makes this covenant so amazing is that God doesn't base it on how great you are or Abram was to keep the covenant, but how good God is to keep the covenant. And let's just say he's the perfect co-signer on any loan you might get. And while that might be hard to grasp, it changes motivations, it changes expectations of what we do because far too often we attempt to earn what God has already gifted us. Why are we trying to pay him back? And then we get self-righteous or angry at God because we think we've earned something or we're mad at him because we just consistently fall short. Verse two, then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Now, this can be read two ways, and we're going to talk today about interpretations of how we come to Scripture, because I think it's really important. And if you come from a tradition or even a lifestyle that focuses more on what you accomplish or attain, it will easily be defaulted to when you read this. Um, Abram, when you're perfect, like me, God says, I'll make a covenant with you and I'll increase your numbers greatly, but you have to do something first. And I don't know about you, but this doesn't sound a lot like the interactions we see with God and people. But interactions that I hear in culture with the devil possibly on someone's shoulder, or even the conversation I hear between Satan and Jesus at the beginning of the Gospels in the desert, where Satan attempts to tell Jesus what he will give him if he does what he wants. God is not attempting to get Abram to shape up or be perfect. As we have studied the book of Genesis over the past few months, we know that Abram, while being a man who has lived by faith, he is much more ordinary like the rest of us when he doesn't live by faith. He does not trust God, but instead he trusts his own way of doing things. Like, let me just bring up some baggage. That time that he told the king of Egypt that his wife Sarai was his sister. Good application, men, don't do this. Or as we studied last week, seeing Abram agreeing with his wife's scheme to use Hagar as a surrogate to have a child with because they didn't believe God when he had made a plan to bless the couple with as many descendants as there were stars in the sky. Let's face it, Abram is us. And I at my best am like Abram. 
And not in the sense that I ought to be written about in the book of Hebrews where all those hearers, heroes of the faith are in chapter 11, but in my day-to-day life, I'm impatient. Just me? I prefer to do things my own way. Just me? Because I don't want to wait on God. Think Instapot. But also because if I do it myself, I don't have to share credit. This is something that in my inner being that I am constantly fighting with, constantly struggling with, constantly doing battle in my soul to give credit where credit is due. And spoiler church, it's always Jesus. It's always God incarnate, either in the person and work of Christ or the leading and faith in the work of the Spirit of God to do what we do, and yet the Spirit says, give the credit to the Son. Now, this covenant is, as we said a few weeks ago, it's like a promise. And the Abrahamic covenant was one that was unconditional, meaning that God was not expecting Abram to keep up his side of the bargain yet. Now, God is going to give Abram and Sarai a way to understand those who have opted into this promise from God and how they can and do identify with God. So verse 3, Abram fell face down. And God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. Abram fell face down. This may be one of the most evidential evidential expressions of one who has been humbled by the Lord. But I don't want you to think that doing some type of action, like falling on your face, is what is expected. This wasn't something the Lord told Abram to do. This was a response to who Abram was talking to and what God was saying to him. Abram had a posture of humility because the circumstance was humbling. Verse 5, no longer will you be called Abram, your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. And God reminded Abram of the unconditional covenant that he had made with him, as for me, God says, you will be the father of many nations, and your name will no longer be Abram, but it will be Abraham, implying a father of many nations. But here is where the story starts to take a turn that unless you've read ahead, it might not be that obvious to you. Many nations is the name of Abraham, which he has now been given, does not necessarily mean from his seed. They don't all come from his family. But the goodness of this promise of by faith, it is accredited to him as righteousness. By faith, you are given right standing before God. Isn't as exclusive as society and culture would like us to assume it is. Abram's an example of one who, by God's grace, through faith, believed God. That's what made Abram blameless. He believed God. Not his ability to make up for his mistakes, but God's ability to make someone righteous by grace. Verse 6. God says to Abraham now, I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. And I think everyone at some point or another thinks about legacy. Do you all think about this? No, just me. Okay. I think we think about what we will leave behind. I think we think about what difference did we make? What mark did we leave? All of what God and Abraham are discussing is a legacy of faith. What gives people to this day, for each of you, it is this legacy of faith that gives us access to God, not by effort, not by morality, but by faith because of grace, getting what you do not deserve. 
But while this is an amazing promise from God to Abraham, many of the kings that would come from his bloodline would, let's just say, leave something to be desired. Read First and Second Kings. Until one day in Bethlehem, a virgin gave birth to a child conceived by the Holy Spirit who would grow up and live a perfect life, live, die, and rise again. But we've read ahead. We live in a post-resurrection world. We live in the knowledge of the Son who, who makes a way for us to have faith, not just in what God had said he would do, but what he has already done in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Verse 7, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of the descendants after you. God was setting up this legacy, these nations and these descendants to all be identified by something and really more importantly, to be identified by someone. Verse eight, the whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants. After you, I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. Here is where people can have some pretty crazy ideas that argue with and deny the idea that anyone who is justified before God is justified by God's grace received by faith through the work of Christ. And so ideas like, well, I am the seed of Abraham, or I grew up in the church, or my parents are Christians, or I attend a church every week, or I watch on live stream, or I listen to a podcast, or let me meddle a little, or I was baptized as a baby, or maybe even a child or a teenager or an adult, doesn't matter. If you were baptized before you actually committed to Christ, I love you, but you took a bath. <laughs> and all of that's placebo. I'm not, I'm not trying to be mean. The reality is what we want are people who live by faith. That is what it means to have righteousness accredited to you. All of that, all of these placebo things all of that stuff makes salvation, what God offers, more of an external work. It's more of a luck of the draw rather than what Scripture points out, that it's God's will and ability to save through grace, received by faith, all because of what Christ has done. Look at how Paul writes to the church in Rome. He says in Romans 9, 6 through 8, For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Well, thanks, Paul. That clears it up. We are not in Christ because someone else received it by faith for us. It is only through God doing the work which is personal to us. In fact, one of the more popular passages in John chapter 1, we studied this back in the Nixon era. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Look, verse 13, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. So God has been making it known since Genesis Old Testament, first letter of the Bible, since Genesis, that our right standing, our righteousness is something that is gifted rather than earned. It is a work of God rather than a work of man. 
It is evidence that the promise is ours to keep rather than something that we strive to attain because those who by faith believed God were like Abraham. They were given right standing with God. They were accredited righteousness. Verse nine, then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant and your descendants after you for the generations to come. Now, God says you must. Okay, I'm a skeptic and I'm your pastor. Lucky you. I'm a skeptic. I'm always trying to find a loophole. I'm always trying to find some inconsistencies everywhere, even in scripture, which I believe in, mind you. But one of the reasons I believe it isn't because there aren't questionable things in it. It's because it does the best job of describing why Jesus rose from the dead, and I'm sure of that. The hardest part I have with scripture is when I see something like this that can be read as effort equals earning rather than faith in God's grace endures. The latter is the correct interpretation. The former is not. This is a word that gets thrown around a lot. We talk about it. It's this fun word, and I'm not going to make you repeat it, but it's hermeneutics, which means the way that we interpret Scripture. And the way we come to Scripture really matters. And this won't be too much of a spoiler, But the way we tend to interpret scripture here at Church of the Valley, let me give you some simple interpretations or hermeneutics or or you could even call them rules when you come to scripture. You ready? First, mankind is inherently sinful. Spoiler, y'all sin. And I probably have outsinned you today and I'm up here talking. Mankind is inherently sinful. Number two, salvation is a gift from God and it requires his intervention. Salvation is a gift from God, and it requires his intervention. Number three, Jesus is the hero. If you read a passage and you're like, I'm like David. No, you're not, unless it's the bad stuff. Jesus is the hero. Now, I dare you. I don't know if that'll help you. It'll help me. I dare you to come to Scripture with those three interpretations, because I think it'll make a little bit more sense. So if it's not effort equals earning, but faith in God's grace endures, then what God says to Abraham is not an ultimatum, but the reality of what God knows Abraham will do. Why? Check it. Because he's walking with him. And what does keeping that covenant look like? It's a symbol of remembrance and identification. Verse 10, this is my covenant with you that your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep, every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Now, this is the sign of the covenant. What does a sign do? It points to something. And while I think we might wrongly assume it points to us, the sign points to God and his ability to give a promise of righteousness, right standing, based on faith, rather than based on our ability or morality, or even our our want to abstain from something. So God says that undergoing circumcision will be the sign of the covenant between Abraham and his descendants with God. So without getting too much into circumcision, because at times I can act like a 13-year-old boy, I'll speak in a very medical sense and use a definition that I found. You ready? Here we go. Circumcision is the (laughs) circumcision is the surgical removal of the precipice or foreskin of a male. 
The word circumcise literally means to cut around. Now, as a religious rite, circumcision was required of all of Abraham's descendants as a sign of the covenant that God made with him. So I need a volunteer. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. All right. All right, I'm done. I'm not going to make fun of it that much more. All right. John Calvin, one of my favorite theologians. He writes it this way, and I think even though it's, it was written in French and then translated to Old English, I still think it makes sense. As formerly, covenants were not only committed to public records, but were also to be engraven in brass or sculptured on stones in order that the memory of them might be more fully recorded and more highly celebrated. So in the present instance, God inscribes his covenant in the flesh of Abraham, for circumcision was a solemn memorial of the adoption by which the family of Abraham had been elected to be the peculiar people of God. That's King James 1 Peter. You're a peculiar people. Y'all are weird. All right, verse 12. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether, verse 13, born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant." He just said, if you, haven't been, if you haven't cut around, you'll be cut off. That's kind of punny. I'm just saying, okay? That's my last pun. All right, here we go. But God was giving specific instructions of when and how the symbol of the Abrahamic covenant would be done. He's very specific. Verse 15, God also said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. Sarai would now go by Sarah, which means princess. And she would be blessed by the Lord even in her very old age and that they would bear a son and many nations and descendants would be produced from her fruitfulness. Verse 17, Abraham fell down and he laughed because he He laughed, and he said to himself, will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? First off, I appreciated that Abraham laughed for multiple reasons, but the sure absurdity of a child being born to a 99 and 90-year-old seems more than just not likely. It's impossible, and that's why it's hilarious. Rather than laughing because he doesn't respect God's promise or even really believe it, it's the sheer absurdity of it all that I assume makes him laugh, and yet he falls down in reverence. Verse 18, and Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing, then God said, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Now, most commentators that I read think that Abraham mentions Ishmael, not because he doesn't believe God can do this, that he doesn't believe that God would provide a miracle of a son, but was content in the blessing of the son that God had already provided him. Contentment is something I believe that all of us struggle with finding. It always seems, at least for me, like my life, as soon as I feel content in something, that there's something new to distract me, 
something new to strive for, something new to want, wish for, or obsess over. But while it might be easy to say or even think that we should just be content in Christ, which is all we need for salvation, I wonder if God doesn't use the fact that we all struggle to find contentment in this world to remind us that this life isn't all that we get. We can look forward to the next life and eternity with Christ without suffering sin or pain. Verse 19, then God said, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him after an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Couple of ironies here. Perhaps God is being punny again because God makes known that Sarai or Sarah, as she is now known, will bear a son at a very ripe age. And that son will be named Isaac, which translates to, he laughs. Which is funny, because Abraham laughed when he was first told this to him, God told him this, and then Sarah will laugh later when Abraham shares this with her in the next chapter. But I also think that God is setting up the reality that he can do the impossible, while also setting the stage for the lineage that would actually happen through Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, which would eventually be the same lineage that Jesus would come from. Matthew chapter 1, verse 17, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to exile to Babylon, and 14 from exile to the Messiah. Now, I highly recommend that each of you make a note if you're taking notes and write down Matthew chapter 1 and read those 17 verses in the family tree. It's pretty amazing to see how God took this man of great faith in Abraham, who also made some serious mistakes, and through a family tree that had a lot of baggage, doesn't your family have a lot of baggage? Let's be real. To bring about Jesus into the world. Verse 20, and as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him, God says. I will make him fruitful, and I will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. Now, this explanation of God's blessing is subtle, and we really only know more of what God meant because we read ahead and we know more. God did bless Ishmael, but his blessing was one more of the flesh, He experienced having 12 sons, and I have one, and I don't know how 12 would be a blessing, but that's fine, that led 12 tribes, and they land, and and he gives them land, and they are fruitful, and they multiply, but Isaac was the son that the covenant of God was designed through. Genesis 25 points out all the names of Ishmael's sons, and then verse 18 The word says, his descendants settled in the area from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt, as you go towards Ashur, and they lived in hostility towards all the tribes related to them. I could go on a rant about how family drama is awful, and it is, and yet it's sinful, but it's also historical, and I'll leave it at that. Verse 21, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. Well, that's some pressure. Now, he's contrasting again that Isaac would be the one that the covenant would be through, not Ishmael. Verse 22, when he had heard, when he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household or bought with money, every male in his household, and circumcised them as God told him. 
God was speaking to Abraham and God went up from him. And Moses, who's writing this letter, Genesis, now shows a huge amount of faith through the obedience by listening to God and taking his 13-year-old son and any other males in his household and giving them the symbol. Let's be real. It was painful. And it was a reminder of God's promise to give Abraham a legacy that would ultimately lead to the savior of the world entering into the fray and being the way that any of us could believe God and it would be accredited to us as righteousness. Verse 24, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised. Okay, I just gotta do it once. Ow, 25. And his son Ishmael was 13, and Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that very day. And every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household, are bought from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Now, all of that to get to, so what's the deal with circumcision? Okay, circumcision was a difficult subject in the early church for early Christians. Jewish Christians wanted the Gentiles to have to keep the same traditions that they kept, and they even taught that in order to become a Christian, if you're a Gentile, a non-Jew, you first would have to become a Jew through the ceremonial rite of circumcision. But circumcision, while a sign of the commitment of the covenant with God for Abraham and his descendants, did not make one right with God by itself. Faith in God's grace has always been the vehicle in which God used to draw someone to himself. So for us today, where most of us are Gentiles or Samaritans, we're not required to be circumcised. That's between you and whatever. The requirement that is expected is faith in God's grace. And I only say a requirement because the faith each of you have, if you've trusted in Christ as your sole means of righteousness, If you have faith, the faith that the scriptures are talking about, they were a gift from God. So that requirement of faith is fulfilled by God, not you. So once again, the only work that saves you is God's intervention of living the life that you can't live, dying the death that you deserve to die, and victoriously rising from the dead. And the faith that you have to believe, a gift from God. It's almost like God should get all the credit so that no one will boast. And no one will believe that they could do enough to be saved. So we, as new covenant Christians, do not expect every Christian male to be circumcised physically, but we do expect them to be circumcised spiritually. I'm not gonna unpack this verse, but here's how Paul puts it to the church in Rome, chapter two, verse 29, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So here, do not hear circumcision and attempt to come up with a 21st century way of working to God. Circumcision of the heart means that identity in anything else but Jesus's finished work has been cut away. So again, I'll say what I said at the beginning. Someone who has been circumcised on this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus has an identity that is one that has cut away anything that isn't Christ being the sole identity of their existence. I am in right relationship with God because of Jesus and Jesus alone. Amen, Tim. Thanks. Appreciate it. And as part of the new covenant, the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus, we, instead of circumcision, can be identified with Christ 
through baptism. But not baptism that is without commitment. And not baptism that is forced upon anyone, but through an acknowledgement that we intend to follow and trust and obey Christ with the Spirit of God's help. Baptism is about obedience and participation in the body of Christ. Why? Because every time I've seen someone baptized in that barbecue-looking thing out there, when they've been baptized, they're doing it amongst witnesses to say, I'm participating with you to make much of Jesus. Now, it doesn't save you, but it is an example of obedience to God as you begin to walk, obey, and identify with Christ. So we're going to have some moving parts. Choir, worship team, I'm going to invite you up to go get settled. And while you do that, I want to tell you a little bit of a story. No rush, guys. Who here, walking up or sitting in the pews, who here enjoys taking walks? Okay, most of you. Good. I'm a fan. Now, I prefer to run for exercise, but man, did I take a lot of walks in 2020 and 2021 while I spoke on the phone with people. Now, years ago, perhaps 12, 13-ish years ago, I would take walks with an elder at a church that I attended, and I served at that church, and he was kind of, I, I made him my elder, if you will. He was a mentor who would walk with me around his neighborhood, and he would allow me to complain to him, and guess what? I complained to him a lot. And he wouldn't pass judgment, because a 20-something-year-old was sounding like a 20-something-year-old. He'd offer advice when I asked for it, and he'd love me, and he'd pray for me. That elder you all know and love is named Michael J. Miller, and we would walk together then, literally in the same neighborhood that I now live in, super weird. And now we walk together in ministry, in friendship, in fatherhood. We walk together because we are in relationship. I don't have to question if Mike's my friend. I mean, I do pay him to spend time with me, but other than that, (laughs) I don't have to question if he's my friend because God has allowed us to share so much life together. And we've been there in the good and the bad. I look back at over the decade of walks and meetings and hangouts and coffees and not coffees and texts and emails and phone calls and FaceTimes and the like, and I know that I don't have to question our friendship. I not only have evidence that we've been through a lot, I know him. I know him pretty darn well. Other than maybe the three people who live in his house, I might know him better than anyone. So church, who do you walk with? And I don't mean physically. Who are you in relationship with? Let me, let me make the point clear. Do you walk with God? Are you in relationship with Him? Do you spend time with Him? Just because. Do you know Him from His Word? I don't want to compare Mike to God. <laughs> but I have value my relationship with this man so much, yet it should be just a small fraction of how much I value my relationship with God and walk with God and know my God because he's given me his word so I could know him. Do you know that the promise of salvation means that you are God's and God's, God is yours? That you are blameless in his sight because Jesus gifted you his righteousness. Church, do you believe this? 
I'm gonna pray and we're gonna sing. And my hope is as you wrestle with this that you would either fill out a card and let us know, man, I, 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 wanna, I wanna trust Jesus more. Maybe you haven't been baptized and you see this as an opportunity to say, you know what, maybe that's holding me back because I haven't done it. We'll talk with you. Maybe you need to serve because you're a pew sitter. Pew, pew, pew. We love that you're here, but man, serving is the secret sauce of growth. So let me pray as I hear what I think is not one of my kids screaming. (laughs) Father, I love you. And I know that you love me. And while I was at my worst, you died in my place. And God, I get to walk with you here with these people that are on the stage and in the pews and on this campus. And I get to walk with you alone, just you and I. And God, I'm sorry for when I take that for granted. And so, Father, as we sing praises to your name, I pray that you would get the honor that you deserve, that we would, in a spiritual sense, fall on our face in reverence, that we would praise your name because you are deserving. And God, as we walk with you, even outside this campus, that, Lord, you would give us the ability to see more of your grace in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.